You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, as you just heard from the reading, chapter or chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Just uh, in, in that, I want to encourage you, through that door is a library. And in that library, we have things called books. <clears throat> and I'm going to be pushing some new books every now and again, um, because we want you to not only read God's Word, but read good books, not just watch YouTube videos and scroll through social media or watch the daily propaganda from whoever. So here's a book. If you're, if you're like, oh, I'm kind of bored with Christianity, like I get it, I've heard it a million times. There's a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And so if you need some good reading, if you want to be re-energized by God's grace towards us over the Christmas season, uh, the books will be right here. Walk up on the stage. Yes, anyone is allowed up here. It's not a sacred place just for me. You can come up and grab the book and throw the little tag in the back there. If you've got kids and you're like, oh, these kids are driving me nuts. I need some boundaries and I need some guidance. Here's a good book by an excellent uh, writer, Dr. Henry Cloud, uh, on boundaries, creating boundaries so that your kids don't run your life. And if you need some boundaries in marriage, not saying that you'd need that in marriage, but if you do, um, here's an excellent book called Boundaries in Marriage. So please come up and grab those and do some reading over the Christmas holidays. Let's pray. God, you are an awesome and amazing God. I am just astounded at what you've done in me throughout the years, what you're doing in other people. As I see your plan unfolding in the world, as it was written thousands of years ago, it is happening before my eyes. As I see you supernaturally healing people that the doctors say will be dead. And you say, no, I will give them life. I'm amazed. And yet, we have something to do with this relationship with you. We have a part to play. We are to follow you in this dance called faith. And so today, as we look at how to put off the old man and put on the new, how to live in the spirit and not in the world, would you help me, a simple person, to proclaim uh, your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice I'm using handheld. I don't usually use a handheld, but uh, the demons were attacking the sound system and the lights. Like we came on, they're flickering. That happens uh, when the power goes out. And so they're up on ladders, and a couple of the headsets uh, blew up or died um, or possessed one of the three. And so here we are. So let's hope this doesn't go out, or I'm just going to yell at you like I used to uh, when I was in the military. Well, a man went to see a counselor. And he went to the counselor, and the counselor said, what can I do for you, sir? He said, I think I'm falling out of love with my wife. What should I do? Well, the counselor said, you need to go back to the beginning. 
Go back to the way it was when you were first with her. Remember how, how you would chase after her. You would pursue her. You wanted to do the things that would please her. You wanted her to be happy with you. You used your manners. You thought about her before yourself. Go and do that and fall back in love with your wife. And so he left, scheduled appointment for two weeks from there, and he went home. And he came back two, years la- two weeks later. And he said, so how'd it go? Well, he said, my standard operating procedure for the last 10 years has been, I get up, I eat some breakfast, I say see it to my wife, I go to work, I get covered in filth at work, then I come home through the back door, I don't really say hi to my wife, I walk in, grab a beer, head to the couch, and sit down and watch TV until my wife calls me in for dinner. And then I go and I eat. And I don't help with the dishes. I just go back to the TV. And then I go to bed and I repeat. And that is what I essentially do. But I decided to do what you said. And go back to the way I used to be. He says, I used to be slim. He had that, um, you know, that uh, belly that dads uh, sometimes put on. And uh, she said, so I joined a gym. And I joined the gym and uh, I went there to exercise and then af- after work. And then I showered there and I brought some clean clothes with me. So I came home clean. And I on the way home, I got some flowers from the flower store. And I, instead of going in the back door, I came to the front door, rang the bell. And my wife opened up the door. And there I was, clean and shiny with, a, with some flowers. And she started to cry cry said the counselor well why said it's been a horrible day the kids teacher phoned and said our son is failing three out of his four classes the washing machine broke and flooded the basement somebody uh smashed their door into our car today and there's a big dent it's going to cost thousands of dollars at the grocery store and then i come home and open up the front door and i find you drunk Maybe you can relate. Sometimes relationships can get stagnant. It's easy to get married. Relatively easy. We complicate things in North America. We have a big wedding. But in essence, it's pretty easy to get married. It's much harder, though, to stay happily married until you die. It's about 50% harder, according to statistics. But it's even harder and seldom ever achieved, to stay happily married. To not allow the relationship to go stagnant, to go sort of plateau and be neutral. That is God's desire for marriages, one of the desires for marriages, and yet it is something that seldom people experience, even Christians. In the same way, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being saved from our sins and and being forgiven and being born again is relatively quick. It's immediate. It's something that happens. You might even not have realized the point that it happened, but it is something that happens relatively quickly. And yet, to grow in Christ, to be sanctified, to consistently walk with Jesus throughout your life, that's something much harder. 
to not fall back into your old ways and repeat the, the cycle that sometimes Christians go through. That's a much harder concept. To be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which is his desire for you, not to stay the same that you were last year, but to look and become more like Jesus Christ as he changes you supernaturally. That is something that seldom actually ever happens in the Christian life, unfortunately. And Paul is going to encourage the Ephesians to do that. We have to understand what is going on here. It's been about 10 years Paul, since Paul planted this church. He was the planter, the church planter, in about 52 AD. About 20 years after Jesus died, he came into this Greek city. Every city um, was controlled by the Romans back then. It was Greek-Roman, Greek culture, but they were Roman-ruled. And so each city usually had its god, its deity. The Ephesians worshipped Diana. Um, They built the city around the worship of Diana. The Corinthians built the worship around um, Aphrodite's. Uh, for instance, the culture that these people are coming out of is it's kind of similar to the culture that we as a society are going into. We are coming out of a Christian society, out of, we are a post-Christian, and going into a secular, uh, universalistic, um, everything-is-open society. They were coming out of that. And so in Corinth, for example, uh, Every night, up to a thousand male and female prostitutes would leave the temple of Aphrodite and go out into the streets and do what prostitutes do with the citizens of Corinth. And if you were a good citizen of Corinth, you would indulge in that because everything was built around pleasure. And the money, the proceeds that you would give for that would go to fund the worship and the temple to Aphrodite. Similar things in all of the other cities. And this is sort of the environment that these born-again believers have stepped out of, the lifestyles that they have come out of. And so Paul founds the church in 52 AD. Then he leaves, and he comes back about two to three years later, spends a couple of years with them, building the leadership, the elders, preaching to them, teaching to them, then goes away again, and on his way back just spends a few days saying hi to people, and then he ends up in Jerusalem in uh, 57 AD, gets arrested, sent to Rome. Now it's 62 AD, 10 years later, and he is writing to them. And funny enough, church planters will tell you that around the 10-year mark of a church being planted, there tends to be a crisis time. There tends to be a time when the rising, the growing, the excitement, the passion wanes, and there are problems. And if a church survives that 10-year period, then there's another one usually about 10 to 20 years later. Why is that? Well, people get comfortable. People, you know, just like in relationships, just like in marriage, they uh, leave the honeymoon stage. They get used to the people. They no longer are pushing forward in Christ, pushing forward for, for faith. They're no longer trying to kindle afresh the flame of faith. They get comfortable. They get possessive. This is my church. And I want things the way new people come in and they don't necessarily like that change that might be coming because they've gotten used to things. As well, the world starts to entice them as we see happening here. And so the Ephesians are in that difficult, challenging time as a church. 
And Paul, as he's been addressing the big issues, as we've seen, unity, unity, maturity, uh, spiritual depth, he keeps pushing to them. Now he's going to tell them, hey, you as individuals, I'm going to tell you the way that you cannot go back into the world. Because some of them are starting to drift back into that uh, Greco-Roman culture and they're being enticed by the things that they used to do. So he's going to lay out three ways uh, that the world will entice you. Three ways that the world acts. Three ways, three reminders of the way that they used to live. And then he's going to lay out two ways to walk closer to Christ so that they don't lose their zeal. Let's pick it up there in verse 17. First way that the worldly wanderer walks is, and all of these notes are in your bulletins, and there's a pencil in the seat in front of you. I encourage you to take notes for yourself. He says, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord that you should no longer... Walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Gentile, as we looked at maybe three or four sermons ago, Gentile is code word for unsaved, non-believer, non-Christian in its purest form. So no longer walk as the Gentiles, the unbelievers do. And you and I were all unbelievers at one time. Maybe you still are. That's okay. You're here exploring. You're here to learn. That's perfectly fine. But everyone at some point in their life didn't believe and then you came to the place where you did believe. You went from non-believer world into the spiritual world. You stepped from the darkness, whether you knew it or not, into the light. And he's reminding them as some of the Ephesians are starting to drift back into the ways that they used to live. Hey, 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 don't go back. You're no longer walking like like you used to do, in the futility of your thoughts. What does futility mean? I had to look it up, and in the Greek, what did it mean when it was written then? It means to aimlessly walk due to a lacking of purpose or any meaningful end. Look at the way that life is, right? Here we are, we, and we, we spend our lives, most people, amassing stuff, you know, buying the stuff that you want, buying the house that you want, buying the vehicles that you want, getting the degrees that you want, uh, getting the positions that you want, and then what? You retire, people forget your name, your degrees go on a shelf, nobody's impressed anymore, your money, it's all left to somebody else for the government, right? And that is the life of anyone who does not have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. That is the futility of their living. They're amassing, they're working, they're trying to get more, and yet the end, it just stays here. There's nothing more to it. And yet we so fight for it and all of its stuff, don't we? The world is just constantly enticing you. Get more for yourself. Get more power for yourself. More pleasure and yet it's futile. King Solomon really got to know this. If you've read King Solomon, he was the son of David. Uh, he was at one time called the wisest man on earth and became the, fool, the most foolish man on earth later in his life. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And a lot of people have trouble saying that, including myself. Try and say that five times fast and see if you can. And he wrote a book, and everyone should read this book. Because it is a, like a great reminder. It's the lament of an old man 
who is looking back on his life and all of the things he wasted time on, and at the end of his life, coming to a conclusion. Remember, he's the richest man at the time, the most powerful man in the time. He expanded the empire of, uh, of Jerusalem farther than it ever was expanded at any point, and then it shrunk after that. He had more influence than anyone. And yet, as he started out well, he started out a man building God's kingdom, glorifying God's name, living for God, expanding God's kingdom. He got persuaded by the world, by the pleasures of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life enticed him away. And he lost it all. And he destroyed his family. And so this book, everyone should read it, it is a lament. So I'll read the first four verses of chapter 1, and I'll read the last four verses of chapter 12, the last chapter in the book. Chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher Solomon. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain from all the toil which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Then to chapter 12, verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it is, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Verse 13. And in the end of the matter... All has been heard. And in those, those 11 chapters, he goes through all the different things that have enticed him, all the things he's watched people chase after, all the pleasures, the wealth, and all of that. And he says, in the end, this is his conclusion to the most important thing in life. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because that's what he didn't do, and that's what destroyed his life. For, all, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He comes to the same conclusion that Paul does. The Hebrew word for vanity uh, is, comes from the same word that futility comes from. It means delusional, empty, fleeting, fraud, or futile. So he's saying, all of this stuff that you're chasing after, if you don't have God, if you don't have an eternal hope, it's all fleeting. It's all a fraud. It will never satisfy you. Don't do it. It's futile. So that's the first thing Paul reminds him. Hey, remember, this is what you were chasing after, and it didn't lead anywhere. Second thing he says is that their minds are in the dark. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. They are darkened in their understanding. Well, that's kind of insulting. If you had said to me 14 years ago when I was a Gentile, you know, you're blind, Ben. I'd be like, huh, probably right. But I would have been, oh, that's pretty harsh. But that is in essence what Paul is saying. We've talked about this in the past. You can be physically blind, right? In physical blindness, if you're blind from start, it means that you can't see the world. You've never seen what the world is like. I don't know what a podium looks like. I only know what it feels like. I need somebody to guide me along, right? I need to take somebody's arm. I need, you know, you see a blind person, they'll have the stick that helps them negotiate. They'll, you'll hear at the stoplights, there's that 
chiming that tells them when to go because they're blind, physically speaking. But the Bible says you can be blind, spiritually speaking. In fact, the Bible says that everyone outside of Christ has a spiritual blindness. That was one of the things Paul prayed for the Ephesians. If you remember back six sermons ago in the second sermon, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, this is his prayer for them in his opening to them. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. We remember that in the ancient days, uh, people looked at the heart as the mind. They didn't understand. And so the spiritual eyes of your heart means that your spiritual eyes would open, that you'd get the things that God is telling you, that you'd understand what Jesus Christ has done for you. And a Gentile, an unsaved person, a non-believer has a spiritual blindness. It's not an insult to them because we were all at one time that way. Have you ever tried to explain something that seems very simple to you, spiritually speaking, to a non-believer, and they're just like, I'm not getting it? Have you ever tried to explain the, the intricacies of human life? Right, Because evolution in its form, in its basic form, is that we're all just accidents. We all just come from ooze. You know, there's no hope, there's no truth, there's no life, uh, there's nothing after this, there's no God, there's no creator. You're all just an accident. And yet, how can the person exist without a stomach? How can a person exist without skin? You know, the, the ridiculousness of evolution that just some ooze eventually came to what we are. You look at a child, the most intricate, beautiful little thing, and you'd say, that's an accident. Right? And, or you've ever tried to explain that to them? And they're just like, I believe we're all accidents. And that we all came from ooze. And you're like, but have you ever seen anything in, 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 in life get more adv- advanced? Right? Look at this virus. So far, the, they're saying that, the studies are saying that um, it's viruses tend to be, as they go, less transmissible. They devolve. They get less deadly as they go forward. Right, And yet, evolution says we get more complex as we go forward. You try and explain that to somebody whose spiritual eyes aren't open, and they're just like, I don't get it. Right, But it's so simple to you who have had your eyes opened. You can be religious, too, and not get it. You can be religious, know all the Bible verses, have gone to church for decades and decades, and still be spiritually blind. And again, that's just what I didn't say. that. That's what Jesus said. When Jesus came to the earth, the Son of God came to the earth, who's the group he had the hardest time with? Was it the prostitutes? Was it the tax collectors? Was it the Roman soldiers? Who was it? Somebody shouted out. The priests, the Pharisees, right? The religious people that knew all the verses, yet whose spiritual eyes had not been opened. It had not touched them. They had not been saved. They did not know God. They knew things about God, but they did not know him. And he calls them blind seven times. Not just blind, but blind guides. Matthew 15, verse 13, or verse 14, they're bugging Jesus about not washing, his disciples not washing their hands, a tradition that they had had. It was law. And yet he says to them, disregard the Pharisees. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And then there's the chapter where a whole chapter, it's just he's rebuking the religious people. Not the other people, but the religious people. 
the people who were blind guides. In verse 16, he says, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verse 19, you blind men. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 26, blind Pharisees. And he says, first clean the outside of the cup, or the inside of the cup. That means your heart. Let God clean up your heart. And then the outside will become clean. Jesus really struggled with this group. And we have to understand and be patient with people that not everyone, we walk into a church sometimes and we're like, why is one group of people seem very different than another group of people? We have to understand that not everyone's spiritual eyes have been opened by God yet. And we call for patience and love and kindness towards them. So that's the second thing he says. Remember, you used to live like that spiritually in the dark. Don't go back there, Ephesians. Don't go there. Then the third thing, verse 19. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity, over to the practice of every kind of impurity, with a desire for more and more. Their consciences became callous. They developed a callous over their conscience. And isn't that true? We can see that. If we look in society, if we look around at what is happening, we can see a callous growing over the consciences of people. That word there means, in the Greek, it means it has passed the point of feeling, of having an ability to feel. It ceases to care. A callous person ceases to care about the things that are important to God, to you, to culture. And no matter what it is, even a person with, who's a non-believer, let's say they, they grew up in, in some other country, never heard of Christ, they're born with a conscience. We know this. There are universal things that we know are wrong, right? Murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. And yet, if you do something enough times, they no longer hear that voice that they used to hear. If you, and I don't recommend you doing it because it's depressing, but if you look at the way they train child soldiers, how in those countries they take children, like single-digit children, and form them into killers, is they take them, little child scared, and they make them do horrible acts. And eventually they get them used to it. And eventually they get them hardened to it. That is what happens to human beings, right? And if you wonder and look at our culture, what is happening to our culture? Well, we've been given over, Romans 1, 28. And because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. You wonder, like 1963, we were at like church attendance peaked in Canada. Right? Some of you were alive then, going to church then. You're like, what happened? Like, what, what happened in 60 years? Less than that. Well, there was a generation raised, majority of them in the church. Some were part of great churches. Some were part of dead churches. But that generation, some of you are part of, called the baby boomers. They, in the 60s, decided, you know what? I know they say these things that we've been raised to believe these things about sex and about drugs and about the sanctity of life and, uh, and about uh, authority and so on and so forth. But we're going to do the opposite. And so there was this point that, you know, they started indulging in these things and there was that voice, hey, 
shouldn't do this. And society said to them, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not good. Sleeping around, it's not a good idea for society. Hey, uh, boarding lots of babies, not a good idea. Hey, indulging in hard drugs, not a good idea. That voice was there. But now you look at our culture and it's like those voices are no longer there. Right? There is a, a desire for more and more. And that's what Paul says to them, right? Uh, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity and the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. And so even now, the baby boomers who grew up in that, who were part of that movement, and some of you have been born again and saved and, and you've been uh, washed clean by the blood of Christ. But even that generation looks and says, what is wrong with today's generation? They've lost their minds. That's been two generations of callous growing over the conscience of those children who have been taught, you're all just accidents. There is no truth. Do whatever feels good to you. And we have what we have. And Paul is telling them, don't go back there. Don't go back there. It's, it's not good. There's even an agency. There's a bunch of these agencies. I, was, I heard a pastor talk about this once. Like we have a society that is built now off of doing what is wrong. There's an agency called the Alibi Agency. It's a worldwide agency. It helps people have affairs. If you want to have an affair and you don't want your wife to find out about it or your husband to find out about it, it will cover your tracks. It will create false emails, false ticket stubs, false theaters. It will act as your secretary. It will get your phone. Oh, sorry, Mr. So-and-so is at this meeting. The alibi agency, it's called. They want to be there off their website. It says, we are a buffer between you and your spouse so that you can do the things that will make you feel good. We will tailor make an alibi according to your specific desires. That is where we are. And Paul says, don't go back there. But then he says, two ways that a Christian can walk closer to Christ. Right? So some of these people, these Christians, their, their spiritual lives have become stagnant, and maybe you're in that way. Maybe you find yourself, ah, I just don't have the passion that I used to. I'm just not into God. He just doesn't amaze me. I don't really want to be around his people anymore. Well, verse 20, Paul says, but that was how, that was not who you came to know. That is not how you came to know Jesus Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. So what does Paul tell us to do? Take off. Take off the old way of life, the old pattern, the old self, right? Every one of us has a pattern that we need to take off. It's the way we used to live. It's those things that get us into trouble. You know what it is. Think of it like this. And if I had my head mic, it would work a lot better, but it doesn't, so that's okay. Think of it like this. This is your old self. This is the way. I take off my shoes for this. Found that out in the first sermon. This is your old self. And believe it or not, We all had these old selves that we used to walk around in. 
Now, your old self might be a little better looking than some other people's old selves. Your pattern of life, your form of life may be a little bit cleaner looking. But Christ says they're filthy rags. Our old way, we were covered in our sin. It polluted us, the world. And we walked around this pattern of life. What does Paul say to do? Keep it on? Keep doing the things that you do and come to church? Nope. He says, he says, take it off. Right? And so those are action words. You can't just sit as a Christian and expect God to do everything. It's a dance. God leads, you follow. And he says, take it off. What? The old pattern of life. The old way of doing things. Get it off. And so it's literally that. Taking it off. It's intentionally, every day, taking it off. It's getting rid of... The old patterns, the old habits, the old priorities, the old ambitions, the old way you used your body, the old way you used your words, the old way you used your money, the old way you treated people before you came to Christ. Those things, need to, you need to take them off. Those are action words you're responsible for. God is holding you responsible. And he will give you, as you show the desire, the power to do it. But you've got to start by taking it off. Look at that. He says, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. I looked up those words. I wanted to really understand what is he meaning by that in the Greek language. Deceitful means a false impression made by deceit, by deceive or cheating. I put that in your bulletin because I really wanted to get what he's saying. Because this is kind of like the key to why we all operate the way we do. And then desires is passion built on strong feelings. So what Paul is saying is, your old self used to be ruled by strong, corrupted feelings. Are we not a culture of feelings? I feel like this. I feel like this. I don't feel like doing that today. You made me feel. I feel. I feel. Everything is built around how you feel. Right? And... You're expected to do exactly to everyone else according to how they feel, but it's impossible, right? Because feelings are all over the place. Your old self, my old self, was corrupted by deceiving strong feelings. Feelings are good, but they are not to lead us. In fact, if you look in the Bible, most of the people that get themselves in trouble, they get themselves in trouble because they operate by their feelings. What did Eve do? Oh, I know God told me not to eat from that tree, but it looks so good. She had a strong feeling of desire to eat the fruit, and she did. What did Abraham, why did he give his wife over to the Egyptian uh, pharaoh to sleep with her? Because he had a real strong feeling of fear. Why did Ishmael trade his birthright to his brother? Because he had a real strong feeling of hunger. Why did David kill Uriah? And commit adultery because he had a real strong feeling of lust. Why did Jezebel kill the prophets of God? Because she had a real strong feeling for power. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because he had a real strong feeling of being let down by Jesus. I thought I would be rich. I thought I would be famous. But Jesus has let me down. Aren't most of the trouble you think about it? You get yourself into. Most of the problems in your life. Haven't it been real strong feelings that have deceived you? Probably, if you're honest. Just go with what your heart feels like. 
Let your heart lead you. But God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I'll be honest with you. I'm be honest with you because I believe if I'm honest, then you can be honest. And then we can all stop being phonies and we can be healed together. There are some times I have real strong feelings. Like I feel really strong that I don't want to come in on a Sunday morning. That I want to quit. Sometimes on Fridays and Saturdays, the elders know if there's a time to pray for me, it's on Fridays and Saturdays. I have these feelings that I'm wasting my life. That people aren't actually going to change. That people are going to come and smile and say nice message and then not change. Not allow God to change them. And that I'm just going to go through this every week and nobody's actually going to change. Those are strong feelings. Are they deceiving feelings? Is that truth? Or is that a lie? You answer the question. Is that a lie or is that truth? This is a lie. I think I hear it. What, I have mice, mouse... Mice in this room, is that truth or is that a deceiving feeling? It's deceiving, right? I hope it's deceiving. Because God's truth, and this is where I have to come back to, this is why you've never just had a blank uh, pulpit on a Sunday. I have to come back, wait a second, God said his word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing both bone and marrow. And, and God says his word won't go out without accomplishing its mission and something, whatever he does, determined for it. And that his word is the, the wellspring of life. So wait a second, I can either operate off my feelings, quit the job, give him two weeks notice, or I can operate off of God's truth, which tells me go in and do what I have asked you to do. Two ways. We have to take off the old self, which is led by how we feel, and put on God's truth. We have to crucify it, Romans 6, 6. For we know that the old self was crucified with him, Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin might be repented, rendered powerless so that it may no longer have power and enslave us over sin. I want to ask you a question. I really want you to think about it. What strong feeling tends to deceive you in your personal life? You probably got something. I guarantee, actually, you have something. It's a strong feeling. Maybe it's fear. You have a fear of people, and you operate out of that, and you make decisions based on that. Maybe it's greed. You feel like you always need more. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's hurt. What is it? What is that strong feeling that tends to deceive you and take you to do things and say things and act in ways that you know are not the way you want to live? It looks like the old self. What is that in you? You know it and God knows it. And, and you need to acknowledge it, one, with God. And I encourage you to tell somebody else what it is so that they can help you be held accountable and say, hey, 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 that's why the elders call and pray for me. Then, it's Friday. Are you listening to deceiving lies? Or are you going to stand on the truth? So he tells us to take it off. And then he tells us to put something else on. Put on, verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. The truth. Put on truth. Take off lies. 
put on truth. Do you want to keep walking strong in the Lord? Do you want to not stagnate and go into bad places? Do you want to keep moving forward as a Christian? Take it off every day and put on Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And literally, like, if we think of this old self, you literally have to, some of us, myself, have to take it off every single day. We, like, wake up. We have to take it off. No, I'm not going there. We, it's at lunchtime. We feel those, those feelings, those emotions uh, dictating us. No, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. That was the old me. The new me is Christ. And every day we're seeking Christ. Action words. Christians are not people that just sit by and let, let whatever happens, happens. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. And set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. With your minds ready for action. That's not a laissez-faire Christian attitude. That is an action mindset. Take it off. Put it on. Any of you grew up reading comic books? I, I grew up reading comic books. And comic books, although they're kind of obsolete now... Before we had TV shows and movies, there was this guy, Spider-Man. Some of you know him, right? Spider-Man, Peter Parker. And I remember my friend and I, Michael, we used to read these comic books together, like a couple of nerds. Just, whoa, look at this. And he'd read it out loud because I couldn't read very well. And, and he'd read it out loud, and, and he had great, like, he'd bring me right into it. But there was this guy, Peter Parker, right? And he'd put on this outfit, the Spider-Man outfit. And he went from a nerd to, like, a powerful hero, and I thought that was so cool. But in the comic book series, there was this alien entity called Venom that came. And Venom, like the suit, would latch itself on to somebody. And it latched itself on, in some of them, to Spider-Man. And Spider-Man, Peter Parker, transformed from superhero to villain. And in the comic book, he had to fight and rip it off. And as he ripped it off, it would try and come back to him. It would try and latch back to him. And that is very much the way your old self is. If you just take it off and don't put anything on, guess what? It's creeping back on you. It's coming back. You have to take it off and then put something else on, replace it with something. Jesus says this in 11, Luke eleven twenty four. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. On its return, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. You've taken it off. Then it goes and brings back seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And it will go in and dwell there. Why? Because nothing has been replaced. Nothing has been put on. And the final plight of that man is worse than the first. When you feel that old ways, those old ways of living creeping back on you, you need to kick it. When I hear those lies on Fridays and Saturdays, I need to kick them. They're lies. They're deceiving, strong feelings. And you, Christian, I want to ask you this other question. As you've identified, hopefully, what is that strong emotion that gets you into trouble, that deceives you? Do you make a conscious effort to put on truth? instead of being led by those strong feelings. That is the key, one of the keys to overcoming worldliness and that passionless life. Do you do that? Let's pray. And now I'm going to invite Don up to close us in, sorry, communion. 
Lord, thank you that you've laid it out. People will say the Bible is a dead book with nothing relevant to our lives, but they've obviously never read it because here it is. You've told us the method to overcoming the sins of our old self, to overcoming those feelings that often dictate our lives and tell us what to do and where to go and what to say. Lord, would you help us? Would you give us the desire to put off and to put on? Would you give us the strength and a reminder? Would you send good friends around us who will gently remind us in love, hey, you're going back there. Don't go back there. Lord, would you help us to be a bright light? How can we reach a dark and lost world if we ourselves are being led by the world? We can't. And so we need you, Jesus. So please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change us and help us to take those necessary steps. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.